So I returned to IMS this year uh, to find even more changes. <laughs> Every year I come back, it seems like there are more and more uh, improvements, renovations that are going on to the building. There's the new dorms. Uh, there's the improved accessibility out front, just things all over the building, uh, which are all part of um, the great care and the great support that um, the board and the guiding teachers and all the benefactors of IMS, probably many of you that have contributed over the years, um, all of the care and appreciation that they have for the work here that we do has been going on and trying to optimize the setting here to be, you know, just the best it can possibly be you know, to, to make this difficult work as smooth as possible. And one of the changes that's new this particular year uh, is the keyless locks up on the interview rooms upstairs which I'm still kind of getting used to. And in order to open those doors, you know, there's a very specific procedure that you have to go through. So you have to punch in the right code. You have to actually get it right or it won't work. You, then you have to turn the knob and you have to push the door. And then it'll open like magic. But if you omit any of those steps or you, know, you get them wrong, or you get, in the, get, get them in the wrong order, as I've been discovering, then the door doesn't open. You know, if you, got, if you have the wrong code, you can turn the knob and push all you want, it's not going to open. You know, or if you just turn the knob and push without putting the code in, it's also not going to open. You have to do each of those things correctly and in, in the right order to get that door to open. And insight meditation works much the same way. <laughs> How's that for an opening metaphor? <laughs> but it's really quite apt, you know, as, as pedestrian as it is. You know, we can think of insight as this process of opening a door in the mind, you know, not that psychedelic door, <laughs> different one, the Dharma door, what's sometimes <laughs> called <laughs> the opening of the Dharma eye or the awakening of the Dharma eye. It's this door that leads from the realm that we're familiar with, where we normally hang out, the, the realm of delusion, confusion, into the realm that's maybe less familiar, the realm of wisdom, and understanding and insight, the realm of compassion and loving kindness. And in order to get through that door, <laughs> that Dharma door, you know, unfortunately there's not a passcode we can give you. <laughs> that would make our work here a lot easier. But we still need three ingredients, which are the three factors of the samadhi portion of the Eightfold Path, the concentration or meditative portion of the Eightfold Path. And of course, really, we need all of the Eightfold Path. That's why the Buddha gave it to us. So we need the support of the right understanding portion of the path so that we actually have some grasp on what are we doing here? Why? How do we go about it? We need the support of the right action portion of the path so that we're living in a way, both now and the past, that's supportive of awakening, that's not in conflict with what we're trying to accomplish. So without those, those other two practices, of course, our meditation is never going to be effective. Um, one of our teachers compared it to trying to you know, take your boat across the river without untying it from the dock. You know, if we're not established in right understanding and right action, then we're just not going to you know, make it out of the starting gate. But once we begin to you know, sit down on the cushion or to stand up in front of the cushion or to, to walk around around the cushion, with the intention to really discover the truth for ourselves, then it's these meditative factors, the right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration 
that we need to mobilize and develop. And just as with the keyless locks, you know, each of those needs to be uh, developed in the right way, skillfully, and in the right order at the right time in order to open the door to insight. The role of right effort, as Mark spoke about last night, is to quiet down those states of body and mind that distract us, distract us from being able to notice what's happening in the present moment. And those states of mind we call typically the, uh, sometimes the hindrances or uh, Utejaniya calls them the defilements in the book that you got today. Uh, we might call them the torments. And Steve's gonna talk more about these tomorrow night. So once right effort has kind of cleared away the difficulties that present themselves, that distract us, then the role of right mindfulness is to notice and to learn about what's happening in the present moment on every front, on every front of our experience, everything in the body, everything in the mind, potentially. The role of right concentration then is to make our mindfulness more continuous, more powerful, more focused so that we can then gradually see more and more deeply into the truth of the present moment, which is what's necessary to gain transformative understanding, what we call insight. So just as with that lock, you know, concentration without sufficient mindfulness or awareness uh, will not bring insight. Also mindfulness without sufficient concentration will not bring insight. And without a steady, balanced effort, you know, we're just not going to get anywhere. And I say sufficient here in talking about mindfulness and concentration because really it's impossible to, to develop either of those in isolation, independent of the other. To be mindful, we need enough concentration to focus on what it is that we're being aware of. We need to actually hit the mark with the awareness. To concentrate, we need to be mindful enough to pay attention over and over again to what it is that we're focusing on. Bhante Gunaratna, who some of you may uh, know of uh, through his great book, uh, Mindfulness in Plain English and the wonderful ones that have come afterwards, or maybe you've had a chance to meet him. He's uh, based at the Bhavana Society outside of Washington, DC. And he's not teaching so much now, he's getting older. Uh, we're hoping he'll be around a while more but it's his uh, custom or his way to end each meditation session that he leads with this little saying. He says that there's no concentration without wisdom, no wisdom without concentration. One who has both concentration and wisdom is close to peace and emancipation. And as, I, as far as I know, this is his own little catchphrase that he's come up with. And um, it's very sweet how he says it in just a very soft, gentle way at the end of the sitting, just as a little reminder. Um, because it really gets right to the heart of this insight meditation practice that we're doing. Developing this partnership between concentration on the one hand, and then the clear seeing that comes with mindfulness on the other, which together will take us through the door leading to peace and happiness. The commentaries have a somewhat more poetic metaphor for this relationship, which goes like this. They say, suppose that there's three children going out to play in the park, and on the way they pass by a tree with beautiful flowers up in the canopy. 
and they decide that they want to gather some of these flowers. But the flowers are beyond the reach of even the tallest child. Can't reach up and grab them. So one of the friends gets down on all fours to make a step stool. And the tallest child can then stand up and get a little more height. But obviously not feeling too secure in that position on, on his friend's back. So then the third child comes over and kind of leans against the tall child on the other child's back to give him some stability. So then standing on his friend's back and leaning on his other friend's shoulder, he can reach out and grab the flower, collect the flowers. And this metaphor always makes me think of um, the giant native magnolia trees that we have around the Washington DC area, which have just actually been blooming recently. They have these, these huge like dinner platter size flowers, you may have seen them. Um, but on the big old trees, they're, they're kind of hidden up in the evergreen leaves and the foliage. And the way that you usually know they're there is you'll be walking under one of these trees and just this amazing scent will waft down from above. And you know, then you know there's one up above you somewhere. And I remember as a child, you know, trying to get hold of these flowers, you know, which were usually out of our reach and going through all sorts of kind of contortions and <laughs> gymnastics to try to get at them. But with some teamwork, you know, usually we could manage to get hold of one. And with the teamwork of right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, then our task here is also possible. And Mark spoke, of course, about effort last night. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the mindfulness and concentration part of the practice tonight. So to begin with mindfulness, um, it's a little bit of a funny thing. You know, on the one hand, it seems uh, very simple, uh, very commonplace. It seems like it ought to be really easy to understand. And here we are on a nine-day mindfulness retreat and doing mindfulness practice. And some of us have been at it a long time. <laughs> and there can be this assumption, kind of, that we know what it is, that there's an understanding of it. But there's this irony with mindfulness that it's exactly because it's so ordinary, so commonplace, so simple, that it can be really difficult to get a handle on it. At first glance, it doesn't really feel special enough, distinctive enough, it doesn't feel powerful enough, just as it is, to really be this you know, essential, pivotal ingredient of awakening. Or we may just not even be able to pick it out from the crowd of more dramatic uh, mental states or experiences that might be going on at any given time. I know for a long time in my practice, um, I was quite confused about mindfulness. I tended to get it all mixed up with strong concentration, which certainly can and does come along with mindfulness, especially in a retreat setting. That happens. But I tended to think that it was those times when the mind was really clear, really focused, really seeing a lot of subtle detail in a very continuous way, um, in other words, not in its normal state, <laughs> that I was really being mindful, you know, the way that I was supposed to be. And that any other quality of experience that wasn't that, you know, was somehow off the mark. I wasn't doing it right. But really, you know, with hindsight now, I was just completely oblivious to all of just those ordinary, uh, unremarkable moments of mindfulness that were happening that weren't accompanied by strong concentration. 
a little ways into my practice, uh, this is after a few years, I think, I eventually had an interview with uh, Sayada Upandita, the great Burmese master who we often speak about here, who's been our teacher at various times. And he gave me a little bit of just the beginning of a clue about the nature of mindfulness, some uh, insight into my misunderstanding. So I was sitting a week-long retreat with him at a small center outside of Washington, D.C., which since has also really grown and taken off. But at that time, it was just like a little suburban house, and uh, some of the donors had, uh, had paid to put like a double-wide trailer in the backyard to be the Dharma Hall. And this was also where the women would sleep at night. So you'd sit there all day, and then you'd roll out your sleeping bag and you know, go to bed for the night. Really makes you appreciate IMS. <laughs> And this was the first time that I had done a, a residential retreat with Upandita. I'd met him before, but not really practiced in an intensive way with him. And as you may know, he really emphasizes mindfulness of breathing as kind of a starting point for the practice, as a way of launching that initial effort in mindfulness and concentration. Um, and I'd heard from my teachers and from other Dharma friends that he was very particular about how you reported in the interviews. You know, so just as here, you know, you go in with him, go in to see him regularly and have an interview to talk about your practice. But you, I was told that you needed to present your practice in a very specific way or he would chew you out because he was really tough, <laughs> which he can be, but he can also be a sweetheart. <laughs> so I went in for my interviews, my interview, and I was quite nervous. And you know, so I did my bows the way you're supposed to with Asian monastics, and you know, sat up very straight and tried to look composed, and like I knew what I was doing, <laughs> and started to give my report, you know, in the way that I thought I was supposed to, you know. And, and clearly, Sayada, you know, had me pegged probably from the moment that I walked in the room, <laughs> but I just, you know, I was coming from a place that was very intellectual, very theoretical. I didn't, I wasn't really connecting. I really didn't know what I was talking about. So after I got a little ways into my report, not very far, he just held up his hand and said, stop. You know, he can speak a little bit of English. And then he told me through the translator to touch my nose, <laughs> which I had to ask the translator to repeat because I was not sure I was getting it right or he was getting it right. But the instruction came back, yes, touch your nose. <laughs> so, you know, what could I do? I touched my nose, you know. <laughs> So there I am, you know, sitting in the living room of this little house with, you know, there's Sayada, there's the translator, there's like another monk who's observing, who's in training, there's like other monks and lay people like milling around, getting ready for lunch, and you know, like there's this whole room full of people, and there I am with my finger on my nose. <laughs> it's one of the highlights of my Dharma career. <laughs> and after a moment, Sayada then asked me, okay, what do you feel? What do you notice? And I was really just completely at a loss. You know, this did not fit into my ideas about, you know, what practice was or what I ought to be doing, you know. It's like, what do you mean? I feel my finger on my nose. <laughs> and Sayada could see that I was, I was at a loss, you know. So he started prompting me a little bit, you know. Okay, do you feel touching? You know, I put my attention to the finger on my nose. Yeah, I could feel touching. Do you feel warmth? You know, I checked it out and yeah, I could feel warmth. And, you know, he paused, and I started to take my finger down, and he said, no, put your finger back up. <laughs> he said, okay, now tell me, what do you feel? You know, so I took a breath, you know, directed the attention to the nose, and was able to come up with a few things. I can feel a little tingling. I can feel a little pressure. You know, just a couple of things. And then he said, okay, continue to practice in this way. 
the bell rings, and that's the end. <laughs> so, I, you know, I still wasn't entirely clear after the exchange about exactly what I was supposed to be doing. <laughs> but it, ga it gave me some inkling, you know, it gave me some uh, kind of a little bit of a spark of what mindfulness might be about. That mindfulness is really just so simple, so simple. It's just simply noticing what's happening in the present moment, what's presenting itself to awareness, which are, is our constant refrain here, right? What's happening in the present moment? What do we notice? Which is really about just letting awareness notice. It's awareness that does the noticing. Technically, mindfulness is the remembering. It's the remembering to bring the attention back to the present moment and then to keep it there as much as possible. I like this description of it that Tanisaro Bhikkhu gives. He says, mindfulness means being able to remember where you want to keep your awareness. Mindfulness means being able to remember where you want to keep your awareness. So the mindfulness is what keeps reminding us. You know, pay attention to the present moment. Pay attention to the body. Pay attention to the mind. And then we can just let awareness do its thing. You know, like the finger on the nose. If we just put our attention there as continuously as possible, then awareness will tell us what's going on without any extra effort, really. We tend to think, you know, it can't just be that simple. <laughs> There's got to be more to it. But really, it is just that simple. Just bringing the attention to the present moment, just noticing what's happening, you know, knowing that we're sitting, know that, knowing that we're hearing, knowing that we're feeling a sensation in the body, knowing that something's passing through the mind. This is really all there is to it. And we experience this all the time, just in the course of our ordinary lives. It happens all the time. And we usually completely miss it because we think that there's got to be more. I love this short teaching from Tangpulu Sayada, who visited here back in the 70s, another one of the great Burmese masters who's passed away now. It's called, What Makes a Meditation? He says, when you know that you are feeling greed, you are no longer in ignorance, but possess knowledge. If you know that you are angry and feel hatred, you are no longer in ignorance, but possess knowledge. When you know that you're confused, that knowing becomes knowledge, and it is a meditation. Even if you become aware of the feeling, I don't want to meditate. That means you have the understanding that you don't want to meditate. Since you know you do not want to meditate, that knowing becomes the meditation, the mindfulness and awareness that you know what you don't want to do. It's so simple. So right effort clears away distractions and paves the way for mindfulness to do its thing. Then mindfulness can direct our awareness to where it needs to be in the present moment, on what's actually happening. And finally, the last factor of the Eightfold Path, concentration, can come in and kind of close the deal, <laughs> sign on the dotted line. And it does that by giving that extra oomph to our awareness that's necessary to really penetrate the experience, to break through to a deeper understanding of exactly what is going on here. And concentration, too, in and of itself, is a fairly commonplace pedestrian quality of mind. It's sometimes defined as one-pointedness or focus. 
It's the ability of the mind to filter what it's going to pay attention to and what it's going to disregard or ignore. And it's present in every moment of consciousness. It has to be or we couldn't function. So at any given moment, you know, there's just tons of sensory, sensory stimulus coming at us. You know, there's so much coming in through our nerve endings from the external environment, from the internal environment, from the mind. And a healthy brain will filter this for us. It picks and chooses. Okay, what's important to pay attention to now or what's interesting to pay attention to now? When there's an impairment of that function, you know, folks that have a, an attention disorder or uh, perhaps in, in folks that experience autism or uh, a condition like that, you know, clearly life becomes very difficult when this capacity of the brain is not operating properly. And concentration in and of itself is also ethically neutral. So just in its kind of ordinary manifestation, you know, we can concentrate on things that are really wholesome, really beneficial, or we can concentrate on things that are really unwholesome, unbeneficial. It takes a lot of concentration for human beings to do some of the really uh, unpleasant, unwholesome, harmful things that we do in the world. In its role as a factor in our meditation, though, we want to strengthen our concentration beyond the everyday level, beyond the ordinary level, and to really put it into the service of mindfulness and awareness. And building concentration is just a simple matter of repetition. <laughs> this is a way in which concentration is also just really simple. Uh, we often use this analogy to it being like weightlifting, you know, the training of the body. So if we, you know, if we hold something heavy and we do this enough times, you know, this muscle is going to get stronger. If we stop doing it then for a long enough time, that muscle is going to get weaker. We're going to lose the muscle tone. And it's the exact same dynamic with concentration, with the training of the mind. You know, if we come back to the breath over and over again, or come back to whatever it is that we're paying attention to over and over and over again enough times, then concentration will grow. That muscle of the mind, the concentration muscle will get stronger. And in the same way, if we, if we stop that practice, if we stop coming back to whatever we're paying attention to over and over and over again, if we stop doing that for long enough, then that concentration muscle, that concentration faculty will get weaker. And for some of us, it's easier to build the concentration muscles in the mind, just as for some of us, it's easier to build kind of the physical muscles in the body, just depending on all sorts of different conditions, conditioning and uh, characteristics that we might have. But for all of us, you know, if we do this enough times, you know, this muscle will get stronger. It's not rocket science. It's just the nature of the body and the nature of the mind. The caveat here is that it matters how we do those repetitions. It matters how we come back. And this is another way in which building concentration is really analogous to, to weight training. You know, if we've got this heavy barbell in our hand and we don't know how to use it properly or we're just being inattentive, you know, we're not being careful enough, then we can injure ourselves instead of getting stronger. So we need to pay attention to you know, the alignment, the speed, the number of repetitions, whatever. And it's the same with building concentration. How we do those repetitions, how we come back over and over and over again matters. We can injure ourselves psychically, karmically, <laughs> if we approach the building of concentration with an attitude of striving or self-judgment, or dissatisfaction. 
You know, those are, those, if we approach it in that way, then we're going to be reinforcing those unhealthy tendencies of the mind, which is not what we want. So we always want to be paying attention to what are we cultivating? <laughs> are we cultivating concentration? Or are we cultivating dissatisfaction and striving? We need to learn to come back to the breath or whatever it is that we're paying attention to, the present moment, with gentleness, with patience, with calm, with kindness. All those qualities that we want to strengthen and not the ones that we don't want to strengthen. But as long as we bring a right attitude to our practice, then really it's just you know, really a matter of brute force, building concentration, just coming back over and over and over again. So I want to mention here one really important aspect of concentration, which is that usually concentration is what makes us feel like we're meditating. (laughs) This is the quality of mind that gives us that nice, satisfying feedback that, okay, something is happening. I'm doing it now. I'm doing it right. Without a certain level of concentration in our meditation, we tend to feel dissatisfied. And we all know this, right? That scattered feeling. The mind is not settling. It's all over the place. Monkey mind, the mind's wandering. You know, we tend to feel like we're just kind of spinning our wheels and nothing's really happening. Which, you know, as we'll be happy to point out to you, is not actually true. (laughs) But that's the the subjective perception. The factor of concentration is what makes us feel like we're doing it right. Makes us feel like it's good. Like we've had a good sit. But really, as long as we're noticing anything that's happening in the present moment, then the meditation is happening. It's a meditation. But it is this fact of life that concentration is very satisfying. It's what gives us that reassuring feedback. And that's helpful. You know, it's very helpful in this practice to feel good about what we're doing, to feel uh, content, to feel pleased with what we're doing, that we're getting some reward for all of the hard work, because it is such hard work. The Buddha said that human beings will always find ways of cultivating concentration, always, regardless of whether there's a Buddha in the world or his teachings are available at any given time, even if the the Dharma completely disappears from the world, which it's said in the Buddhist cosmology happens at times, still human beings will find ways of cultivating concentration because it is so beneficial in many ways. And if we think about it, you know, we can see this, that this is true. You know, it's really difficult to get through life without some sort of concentration practice. Um, but it can take many different forms, you know, even for those of us that don't consider ourselves uh, spiritual or to have any spiritual practice. So for some of us, our concentration practice might be uh, Sudoku, you know, or chess, or bird watching, or for my father, it's photography. Or it might be uh, golf or basketball. It might be uh, pottery or, you know, playing the violin. It can take all sorts of different forms. But it's really difficult to get through life without some activity, some training of this type that helps to keep us sane. Concentration really helps to keep us sane. But there's also an irony, a paradox, that comes along with concentration. So on the one hand, you know, it's part of the Eightfold Path. It's essential to our practice, essential to uh, realizing our goals. It makes us feel satisfied with our practice. It has all sorts of just short-term benefits in terms of mental health and well-being. But (laughs) 
in and of itself, it does not actually hold the key to lasting peace and happiness. So the benefits of building concentration are, are many. And to the extent that we cultivate concentration in our lives in various ways, through meditation, through other practices, we're bound to benefit. But those, benefit, those benefits are also very fragile. They're very conditioned. They're very vulnerable. Because as soon as we stop doing this, the benefits disappear. So it's a, it's a classic experience, you know, and I'm sure some of you have had this, to come on a retreat like this, you know, put in all the hard work on the cushion, sitting, walking, paying attention, following the instructions, building our concentration way beyond its ordinary everyday level, and get some feeling towards the end that oh, I've really accomplished something that's worked, you know, that's had some real benefit. I'm on my way now. And then we go home. <laughs> And maybe we're meditating a lot. Maybe we're meditating two or three times a day. You know, we're really enthusiastic, full of faith. You know, or maybe our life circumstances don't allow for that. But certainly we're meditating less than we do here. <laughs> and the quality of the mind changes. The strength of our concentration wanes. All the nice benefits that we might have got from it start to dissipate. And then we think, oh, I've lost it. Or it didn't work. It didn't take after all. Or maybe, you know, I'm just not a good enough yogi that I could manage to hold on to it. You know, it didn't work in some way. But in fact, all that's happened is just that we came on retreat, concentration got stronger, then we went home, and concentration got weaker. That's really all that happened. So the lesson to take away from that dynamic is not that we failed in our practice, or the practice itself is, you know, not the right one, or that we haven't got what it takes, but just simply, and importantly, the concentration is not a reliable source of peace and happiness. Which, in fact, is what the Buddha found in his own search. You know, this is part of the, the traditional story of the Buddha's life, kind of a key uh, element of it. That after he met with the heavenly messengers, it kind of woke him up to the suffering that there is, the insecurity that there is in life. He left his father's palace and went looking for a teacher. I love this one description of it that I found in the in the suttas, he said, uh, while still young, a black-haired young man endowed with the blessings of youth in the first stage of life, and while my parents, unwilling, were crying with tears streaming down their faces, I shaved off my hair and beard, put on the ochre robe, and went forth from the home life into homelessness. You know, really on this quest, on this epic quest. And the first thing he did was to seek out the foremost teachers of his time. You know, naturally, that's what we would do. We look for a good teacher. And the first one he encountered was Alara Kalama, who was a teacher that taught concentration practices uh, leading to very deep altered states of mind, what's called the dimension of nothingness. Concent concentration so deep, so intense, so continuous that the sense of the body just completely falls away. Uh, there's very little, if anything, happening in the mind. And there's just this sense that there's just nothing whatsoever, no body, no mind. And he perfected this teacher's practice. He learned, he got really good at attaining the state, at studying it, at staying in it for long periods of time. He got very skillful at coming in, coming out. He knew just how to make the mind work to get to the state. But he wasn't satisfied because he would go into the state and then he would come out. And when he came, back, came out, there he was again. <laughs> so he left this teacher and went in search of another one and found Udaka Ramaputta 
who taught concentration practices leading to what's called the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception. How's that sound? <laughs> the state where the mind is just so still, you know, there's just so little happening, that almost all mental activities stopped, um, that it's impossible to even say, you know, am I perceiving anything or not? You know, it's just so ephemeral, and so uh, ethereal, intensely peaceful. And he had the same experience. You know, it was great while he was there. You know, he got really good at it. You know, this teacher, too, invited him to come and, you know, be, become a teacher with him, take over the community. He was so good at attaining the state of concentration. But he realized, you know, that this, too, this, even this incredibly still, blissful state, really just keeps the problem of suffering at bay. It doesn't solve it. So he went off on his own and eventually, you know, as we all know, made this great discovery that we're still talking about here today, that it's insight and the wisdom that it brings that's actually what will solve the problem of suffering. Solve it permanently. Put it to bed. Concentration helps us on our way. You know, we need it to get through the door. Absolutely, no question. But we can't really rely on it to get us through everything that life is going to dish out to us. So in the style of practice here, we don't hold up the many benefits of concentration as an end in themselves, as a goal in themselves. Another experience that can happen is that we've been practicing for a while, you know, whether a short period or a long period, we've cultivated a certain amount of concentration, uh, come to enjoy it, come to uh, incorporate it into our lives. And then something hard happens. Tragedy strikes in one form or another. And we find that it's not really possible to sit and meditate the way that we used to. The mind is just too agitated. There's too much up upheaval. You know, we can't get into perhaps states of calm, relaxation that we used to be able to access. But instead, wisdom steps in and sometimes in very unexpected ways that can be a tremendous help and comfort. I've had the privilege over the years to speak with a number of longtime practitioners, longtime yogis, um, who have really been hit by some of the hardest things that life can send our way, uh, debilitating illness or a severe injury, um, the illness or injury of a partner or a child, the, the death of a partner or a child. And these things happen. I'm sure uh, there are those of us here, too, that have had to face these heavenly messengers. And some of these people that I've spoken with have done a, a lot of concentration practice, maybe targeted concentration practice, or maybe just cultivating concentration uh, in the course of their mindfulness practice, um, and really cultivated the ability to enter into very peaceful, very calm, very tranquil states, um, enjoy many benefits in their daily life because of it. And all of them had said that this practice has really been a blessing during these times of difficulty, during these really hard, uh, traumatic times of life. In many cases, they've said it's really been their saving grace. But not from the ability that they've cultivated to enter into concentrated states or to enter into peaceful states of mind because of concentration. Usually at these you know, really difficult times in our life, it's not possible. The uh, 
necessary conditions and causes are not there. But what they found to really be a godsend is the ability that, they, that they've cultivated to just be with the present moment, to just take each moment as it comes, as it is, with all of the pain, all of the confusion, all of the gratitude, all of the love, everything that comes at these times in our lives. And this can be a real eye-opener, a real turning point in practice, realizing that it's not about having a pleasant meditation. It's not about having any kind of pleasant experience. It's not about walking around in some kind of perpetual bliss, walking on a cloud, or attaining some kind of peak experience. That it's really about understanding. It's about wisdom and the peace that that can bring. That's what's reliable. That's what's ours to keep when we leave here and go home. Not the concentration, but what we learn, what we come to understand about ourselves and about being human. And of course, this realization doesn't have to happen through tragedy, um, although sometimes it's particularly poignant in those situations. But it can just come with time, with practice, with patience. Just little by little, we gradually get. Concentration comes. Concentration goes, you know, pleasant sittings come, pleasant sittings go. And there has to be something else. There has to be something more reliable that we can find to really sustain us through the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of life. This realization is actually such a turning point such a universal feature of long-term practice and walking this path that it actually has a formal name in the traditional teachings. It's called realization of what is and what is not the path. Realization of what is and what is not the path. I had another aha moment around this in the course of my practice. Uh, This was a time when I was practicing for a long period of time for a year in Burma and had, uh, was practicing in robes as a, a ten-precept nun, uh, very similar to keeping the eight precepts here, except you get to wear these wonderful pink, bright pink uh, polyester robes and shave your head, <laughs> which I loved. <laughs> I highly recommend it. But um, there was a time when I was out at um, the Upandisa's Forest Center, which is in this kind of very quiet rural area, um, kind of away from any big uh, cities, And um, at this particular point in time, I had also kind of retreated into my kuti, into the little cabin that I was staying in and doing most of my practice there um, because uh, also going on uh, was uh, the the Buddhist uh, summer camp (laughs) during the the hot season in the spring in Burma um, when it's just too hot for any of the kids to go to school. So they'll often take a week and come ordained temporarily to, you know, get their merit, start to get their Buddhist education. Um, and lots, like lots, like maybe a hundred or more than a hundred little kids had come, and um, you know, were, so they were really cute, you know, in their robes and you know, getting their training, you know, how to, to follow the monastic discipline. But it was kind of a lot of chaos, and I was keeping my distance far as far away from it as I possibly could. So I was just really hanging out in my kuti, and I'd actually been there for a couple of months, just mostly by myself, coming out to eat, and then occasionally to talk to my teacher. And the mind had gotten very, very still. Very quiet, very peaceful. And I was reporting at that time to um, 
a, a little old monk uh, who was interviewing the, the, West, the few Westerners that were at the center at the time. And the way he conducted his interviews was that um, he would read the newspaper. <laughs> he'd come into, your kuti, into, I'd come into his kuti, he'd be reading the newspaper, kind of like this. And I would do my vows as he continued to read his newspaper. And I would make my report through the translator. He didn't speak any English as he continued to read his newspaper. <laughs> and at the end of my report, he would you know, mumble a few words as he continued to read his newspaper, which the translator would uh, convey to me. And then that would be it. I would go out and try to follow the instructions. <laughs> but he actually used the newspaper in a very skillful way. And I have my doubts as to whether he was actually reading the newspaper. Because every, every once in a while, the newspaper would come down. And that's when I knew that I was actually saying something relevant, <laughs> something important. <laughs> so the, um, the Buddhist summer camp kind of came towards its conclusion. And one of the, the concluding experiences for all these little kids was going to be to go out and go in an alms round through the closest big city, which was like maybe, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes drive away in these really smelly trucks with lots of exhaust, exhaust over very bumpy roads. Um, which I didn't know about until one morning after breakfast, uh, the senior nun came up to me and said, you know, the children are going on alms round today. Please be at the truck at such and such a time. You're going on alms round, <laughs> which just was horrifying. You know, I had been in this deep seclusion. The mind was so still, and the last thing that I wanted was to tromp, you know, tromp off on you know, some big expedition with truckloads full of children. <laughs> So I asked her to, to double check, you know, can you ask Sayadad, are you sure he wants me to go? <laughs> and she came back to my kuti and said, yes, we're going now, please come, you know. So what could I do? I went. <laughs> and actually the alms round was a wonderful experience. That's kind of a whole other story. It, it was the only one that I got to go on. You know, as a nun, you don't uh, so much get to have that experience of going out for alms. So it was very special. But when I got back, the mind was totally, totally disrupted, you know, my concentration you know, actually in absolute terms was still relatively high, but compared to what it had been, it was just racing, all sorts of thoughts, you know, remembering what had happened during the day, good and bad, and just totally spinning out in proliferation about this very stimulating, exciting experience that I, that I had, to my horror. And the next day I had to go in and report to the monk with the newspaper. <laughs> so I went in and uh, made my bows and, you know, immediately launched out, launched into this you know, um, just rant about, oh, it's, my concentration is completely shot. My mind's just wandering all over the place. I'm in so much agony. You know, it's horrible. It's terrible. <laughs> At which point the newspaper came down. <laughs> and I got a message back through the translator. He said, it's the nature of the mind to wander. Please report as usual. So I did as much as I could. I tried to, you know, just report on what it was like to have this wandering mind, what it was like to have this body that was buzzing with all the nervous energy of the expedition, just whatever I could uh, report about what the actual experience of it was, feeling all the time like it was a complete failure. And he must realize this, you know. And I was so ashamed. But the newspaper stayed down. And at the end of that report, he looked at me, which he rarely did. <laughs> And he could speak just a few words of English. And he, he said to me, good. And that was it. But it was such a teaching. You know, it's not about getting to the stillness. It's not about holding on to the stillness. It's about being able to just roll with the punches and everything that is coming along, whatever it might be, the good, the bad, and the ugly, however we might feel about it.
So concentration is not the goal, it's not the end point of the path, but it is an essential ingredient along the way. So how do we cultivate it? And there are two main approaches to building concentration, both of which we offer here at IMS at various times, uh, both of which you may have used in your own practice at various times. Uh, one of them we might call the direct route, which is basically we just concentrate. <laughs> so we choose something to focus on, um, the breath or the body, maybe the loving kindness phrases in that meditation. And we choose a way to focus on it, you know, the, maybe noting in and out or following at a certain place in the body, counting breaths, body scans. There's all sorts of uh, various techniques for focusing the mind on an object of concentration. And then we just focus. We just bring awareness over and over and over again to that particular experience that we've chosen, like lifting that barbell. When the mind wanders, we bring it back. When it wanders again, we bring it back again, over and over and over and over again. And this gradually unifies the mind. It wears a groove in the mind. The Buddha said that however we use the mind, that will become the natural tendency of the mind. So just by repeatedly doing something with the mind over and over and over again, this becomes the natural tendency of the mind. The mind falls into that groove more and more often, more and more easily. So this approach is a, a deliberate building of concentration, a deliberate conditioning of the mind directly developing concentration by re repeatedly directing our attention to a very narrowly defined set of experiences and activities. The other way of building concentration we might call the indirect route. And this is the route that goes by way of mindfulness. So we do this by bringing the mind, you know, also back over and over and over again, but instead of to a specific experience, we bring it back to the present moment to something, to anything that's happening in the present moment. Could be sensations in the body, could be mental activities, whatever it is that we happen to notice. And this also actually builds concentration. It's a different way of building concentration. The concentration that comes this way is sometimes called momentary concentration or kanika samadhi. This is one of the great innovations of Mahasi Sayadaw, one of the fathers of this lineage grandfathers of this lineage, uh, this realization that we could build concentration along with mindfulness through attending to the present moment. So because we're concentrating on different experiences from moment to moment, it's called momentary concentration. We're only, the mind is only settling on any specific experience just for a moment. But because we're making the repeated effort to do that, coming back, coming back, coming back to the present moment, it also steadies the mind, builds concentration, also creates a groove in the mind that will bring the mind more and more often, more and more easily back to the present moment and whatever it might include. So with this type of practice, what we're concentrating on is really the present moment itself. We're concentrating on the present moment the details of the moment, what the specific experience might be there, are not so important. What's important is the continuity of mindfulness, that coming back, remembering to come, come back to the present moment. So an important part of our practice on this retreat and just in general is learning for ourselves when and how each of these approaches will work best for us. And it's natural for there to be some confusion around this. 
you know, we, it's very common to have these doubts, you know, should I follow the breath now? Should I open up the awareness? Um, you know, should I do some metta because I'm feeling really contracted? Uh, should I just be whatever arises, the predominant experience? You know, we all struggle with this kind of doubt as we go through our practice. What's the appropriate thing to do in this situation? And unfortunately, you know, we just find that it depends. <laughs> it depends on circumstances. It depends on, you know, our own particular body and mind and their conditioning. Uh, it depends how we're feeling right now, the conditions around us. It depends on how our day has gone, how our life has gone. And it's part of the practice and the art of meditation in this tradition to experiment, to try different things, to see how they work for us at different times, to learn what signs and signals in our own system indicate that a particular approach or a different one is going to be most useful at any given time. So it's this process of self-discovery. You know, how does this mind and body work? What's helpful, what's not helpful? And this can be daunting, but it also is really exciting. It's really enlivening. So how do we know if our concentration is developing? This can also vary a lot from person to person because it can take many different forms, have many different manifestations. And we may have a very personal, individual language for describing how we experience concentration. But there are certain things that we might tend to notice that are somewhat consistent. One of the big indicators the concentration is present is calm. Calm or tranquility tends to come along with concentration. Those two terms are often used uh, synonymously or interchangeably. So if we come out of our meditation or within our meditation and we find that we're just feeling calm and relaxed, you know, not the, the sleepy calm, not the losing consciousness calm, but just in a, in a light, easy kind of way. Uh, like we've had a good nap, we feel re just refreshed and relaxed. That's a good sign that concentration has been building. The concentration can also build without our realizing it. You know, we can have a lot of these moments where there's just kind of a light calm in the mind. You may not even notice it. And concentration can build without realizing it. And then we get to the end of the retreat and we go home and then we really realize that we can feel just how calm we are as we're driving along the road, you know, 20 miles below the speed limit. <laughs> I, I left one retreat once and uh, had a woman pull up beside me and, you know, signal to roll down my window and I rolled it down and kind of smiled at her. She said, honey, you're going really slow. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that we might notice is what's called a sense of seclusion. So it can feel at times almost like there's a, a curtain or a veil being pulled across the senses, the sense of, of turning inward, not really taking in so much from our surroundings, from our external environment. Maybe you know we not, may not notice sounds so much, or we may not notice the movements of other people around us as much as we normally do or things that were kind of irritants in the environment, they just kind of recede. They're not a problem anymore. These are the effects of, of seclusion. We may notice that time is passing more quickly. You know, we may, you may have been lucky enough to have one of those sittings where you sit down, feels like you just notice a few things, and then the bell rings, you know, and we're like, hey, where did that go? That was easy. This is another sign that concentration is, is present. We may have some experience of what's called piti, 
which is often translated as rapture, um, but is really a, a quality of uh, joyful interest is a translation I like better, where the mind is just really fascinated by what's going on. And this can in turn cause all sorts of special effects, kind of the, the woo-woo experiences that we have in meditation where you know, we might feel like we're floating on a magic carpet or we might feel like the body is so heavy we just absolutely can't move or there might be you know, light shows or you know, waves of pleasure going through the body, all sorts of kind of the interesting experiences of meditation that we can get very attached to <laughs> are usually a result of piti. And, you know, again, it's not to kind of try to grab hold of those experiences, but we can recognize that these are signs that concentration is building. Or we might have a more subtle, a more refined uh, experience of pleasure when concentration is building. What's called sukha, which is a word that comes from the same root as sugar in English. The sweetness, a kind of a sweet, uh, very refined, very uh, relaxed kind of pleasure and enjoyment in the meditation. Everything just feels like it's okay. There's no problems. Everything is just hunky-dory. It's the sign that uh, uh, concentration is building. So this is just a little bit of you know the different flavors that concentration can take. And you know as we can hear, these are all wonderful. <laughs> these are all things we'd like to have. These are all things that um, you know at various times in our practice. This is really what we're here for. You know, we're here for more pleasant feeling. We're here for the relaxation. Um, you know, often this is what brings us to the practice, and that's fine if this is the starting point, if it gets us on the cushion, if it gets us going. But really the most important feature of growing concentration that we want to keep an eye out for is the receding of the hindrances, these difficult states of mind that uh, keep us from being able to really settle and be mindful in the present moment. And as I said, Steve's going to speak more about these tomorrow, but there are those imbalances of energy, you know, either in the body or the mind, too much or too little, you know, the, the falling asleep, falling into the sloth and torpor, not being able to connect, or on the other end of the spectrum, being just too jittery, too agitated to connect. Um, they're all the obsessive thinking, the, you know, the harping on all the likes, the dislikes, the confusion. So as concentration grows, the mind becomes more collected, more steady. And these kinds of distractions are kind of, they're pushed out of the mind. They're mutually exclusive with concentration. As the mind becomes collected, then all these distractions naturally recede. And we can experience this as just a sense that it's, it's much easier to stay in the present moment. The mind's not so pulled off into thinking, not so pulled off into distractions. We're not constantly dozing off or checking out. It feels like it's just okay to be here now. And we may wonder, you know, why was this so hard? <laughs> you know, what, what's the problem? Just a sense of ease and being with the present moment. So it doesn't have to be dramatic, but it's a definite shift in the, in the mind state. And this is the point at which insight begins to be accessible. The point at which awareness can really start to connect with the present moment's experience in a powerful way, really sink into it and begin to pick up on aspects that we may not have noticed before. Not from all of the, the pleasure, the satisfaction that we might get from the concentration, but just from that very simple ability to be able to settle into the present moment without distraction and connect with what's happening. That's when we can then apply our mindfulness in a powerful way with skillful effort 
to turn the knob and push open that door to wisdom. Utejaniya says, it's not difficult to beware. It's just difficult to do it continuously. (laughs) With continuous right effort, mindfulness will slowly gain momentum and become stronger. When mindfulness has momentum, the mind is strong. A strong mind has right mindfulness, right concentration, and wisdom. So let's sit for a moment. There is no concentration without wisdom, no wisdom without concentration. One who has both concentration and wisdom is close to peace and emancipation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.